Thank you, Ralph. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, let me ask you a question. Guess how much I love you. Now, that's uh, actually the title of a book. It's one of my uh, favourite kids' books of all times. Uh, when my three girls were really young, this was the one book that I absolutely loved reading to them. And it featured uh, not brown hair. How, how many people have seen this book? Lots of you have. Brilliant. And, and every time I read it to my girls, and I read it to Shannon, and I read it to Cara, and I read it to Kristen when they were very young, but every time I read it to them, it, also, it reminded me just how much I actually loved them. But even more than that, and, and uh, this may seem very simplistic, but every time I read it, it also reminded me of how much my Heavenly Father loves me. And I, I used this about five years ago uh, with a group of young people at New Horizon. And I've never used it since, and I've never used it in church until tonight. Uh, and I'm going to read it to you. So I hope you don't mind. Uh, I hope you just are going to sit comfortably and just enjoy this story. Little Nut Brown Hare, who was going to bed, held on tight to big Nut Brown Hare's very long ears. He wanted to be sure that Big Nutbrown Hare was listening. Guess how much I love you, he said. Oh, I don't think I could guess that, said Big Nutbrown Hare. This much, said Little Nutbrown Hare, stretching out his arms as wide as they could go. Big Nutbrown Hare had even longer arms. But I love you this much, he said. Hmm. That is a lot, thought little nut brown hair. I love you as high as I can reach, said little nut brown hair. I love you as high as I can reach, said big nut brown hair. That is quite high, thought little nut brown hair. I wish I had arms like that. Then little nut brown hair had a good idea. He tumbled upside down and he reached up the tree trunk with his feet. I love you all the way up to my toes, he said. And I love you all the way up to your toes, said Big Nut Brown Hair, swinging him up over his head. I love you as high as I can hop, laughed Little Nut Brown Hair, bouncing up and down. But I love you as high as I can hop, smiled Big Nut Brown Hair, and he hopped so high that his ears touched the branches above. That's good hopping thought little nut brown hair I wish I could hop like that I love you all the way down the lane as far as the river cried little nut brown hair I love you across the river and over the hills said big nut brown hair that's very far thought little nut brown hair he was almost too sleepy to think anymore and then he looked beyond the thorn bushes out into the big dark night. Nothing could be further than the sky. I love you right up to the moon, he said. And he closed his eyes. Oh, that's far, said Big Nut Brown Hair. That is very, very far. Big Nut Brown Hair settled Little Nut Brown Hair into his bed of leaves. And he leaned over and he kissed him good night and then he lay down close by and he whispered with a smile I love you right up to the moon and back 
want to go to sleep now. I love that story. Uh, if you were here this morning, you'll know that we're going to be spending uh, four services during this Advent season uh, looking at a 26-word parade of hope. This 26-word parade of hope. Probably the best-known verse in all of Scripture. And as I said this morning, Max Licato, writing about this verse, said it's a 26-word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with God, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. We all need the reminder. The heart of the human problem is the heart of the human. And God's treatment is prescribed in John 3:16. And earlier today we looked at the one word that seems so radically different from the other 25. And I'm just sort of doing this for people who weren't here this morning just to set a bit of context. We looked at the one word perish, which is a difficult word. It's actually a threatening word. And yet it's a very honest word because according to God, that is what happens to people who resist the content of the rest of this verse. And it's a word that escorts us to one of the most somber of Christian realities, and that is hell. And that is, I said this morning, a difficult word, even a hideous word, that caused biblical writers to find phrases and words to describe it, words that that don't exactly sit comfortable with, words such as blackest darkness, is how Jude put it in the 13th verse, everlasting destruction. It's another phrase we find in 2 Thessalonians about this place. Or in Matthew 8, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And based on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, what I said this morning, or what I tried to say this morning, was that despite all the discussion and all the controversy and all the debate about hell, the three things that I can say quite clearly about that place is this. It's somewhere you don't want to be. It's somewhere without hope. And yet it's somewhere you don't have to go. Resist God. Resist this verse. And you will perish. And that is, I know, a huge and a frightening statement to make. But I need to say it. But what I also need to say, and this is really important, is that tonight and the next couple of services are really all about how the other 25 words help us see that the prospect of perishing is not inevitable. And tonight we're going to turn to the love dimension of this verse. Here, in a sense, is the guess how much God loves us aspect. Only in so many ways, there's no guessing to be done. And next Sunday morning, we'll then turn to the faith dimension. And then Sunday the 27th in the morning, we're going to look at the life dimension. As I said this morning, I hope you can make as many of those as possible so that you get the whole story And I realize that if people were just here this morning, they they may have got one aspect of the story and may have left feeling quite down and and low. Uh, But I I hope as we go right through these four services, we'll get the entire picture. This morning we looked at only one word. Tonight I want to look at 14. And it's the first 14 words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And I don't want to rush this tonight. 
uh, because what I want to do is I want to actually, in a sense, walk us through those 14 words so that we can pause and reflect, that we can pray and respond because there is so much to take in, even in the space of just 14 words, so much to chew over. And so for about the next 15 minutes, what I'd really like us to do is just consume these words and digest them as we're actually encouraged to do with God's word. And so it begins, for God. And we need to begin there, because there is a God. And I realize that not everyone accepts that, but if we're going to make progress, if we're actually going to take this verse anywhere, then we need to begin from that perspective. For God, there is a God. Can I prove, can you prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that there is a God? Can anyone prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that there isn't a God? Where did God come from? When did God begin? Who made God? We're all familiar with those and similar questions. But here's how God's word responds and answers what for me are conundrums. Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God never began. God will never cease. That's God's word on the issue. In the beginning is how it starts. God. doesn't try to explain where God came from, where God began, how God began. Just in the beginning, God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is something that is difficult at one level for us to take on board. I know that. It's mind-blowing. And for many people, they, they, they just cannot quite get that. But it is a starting point. But to take this further, and obviously this is, this is not a sermon trying to uh, prove the existence of God. But as a starting point, let me encourage you and encourage you to encourage others to do three things when it comes to this whole idea, there is a God. Look up, look around, and look within. Look up. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's what David writes in Psalm 19. In other words, the universe is God's greatest missionary. Look up. It tells. It announces. It speaks of. It points us in the direction of God. I'm sure we've all had the experience of looking up at an incredible sunset or a breathtaking star-studded sky. And it's as if they speak to us. It's as if they communicate something. Something within us stirs. Appreciation stirs. Wonder stirs. Awe stirs. Because the heavens declare. The skies proclaim. A house implies a builder. A painting suggests a painter. And surely in the same vein, creation implies a creator. Stars suggest a star maker. So look up and discover there is a God for God. Secondly, look around. Take a look around at one another. Each life is a miracle. Each new life 
is an extraordinary miracle. Eyes, hearing, reflexes, a pre-programmed understanding of what food is, where to find it. The tiny heart that patters away and little lungs that breathe from almost the first moment of life and then hurl air past vocal cords to create one of the loudest sounds you will ever hear. A little baby is mind-blowingly complex with 60 trillion cells, each of which carries more information than can be stored in the shelves of a university library. Each individual is totally unique with a special blend of 6 billion distinct, separate and precise instructions that make up its genetic code. So I read. Is that all the result of chance? Or does it reveal that there is a God, a master planner, a cosmic architect behind it all? Look around you at the miracle of life. There is a God. And then look within. And I know this is not always easy, not always pleasant. But within us, there is an inbuilt sense of right and wrong. There is an ethical code, a conscience. And I realize that in some it seems more messed up than in others. But deep down we know that what happened to Millie Martin, that 15-month-old baby, who died on Thursday after being assaulted at her house in Enniskill, and we know that was wrong. We're sickened by child abuse. We're sickened by paedophilia. We're disturbed by injustice. Where does that come from? Romans 2. There is something deep within that echoes God's yes and no. There is something deep within that echoes God's right and wrong. You see, as creatures created in the image of God, we have this innate, this inborn, this instinctive sense of right and wrong. And for me, that points to the fact that there is a God. Look up, look around, look within. The heavens point to the fact. New life takes us in that direction and our internal moral compass implies it. For God. There is a God. Let's go on. For God so loved. Do you know of all the things you can say about God... And there are so many things you could say about God. The one thing we simply must say is that God loves. And Ralph has taken us there this evening and encouraged us to think about that. Love is a word in danger of overuse. I know that. It's a danger of being misused. So much confusion caused by the use of that word. But when we are confronted by the fact that God so loves... It's absolutely imperative that we grasp the true meaning of the word love. God loves. Agape love. More than affection. It's an action. It's a decision. It's more than a feeling. God loves not because we deserve it, but because it's in his nature to love. God is love. And God must be true to his nature. He must be true to his character. God loves the lovable and the unlovable. He loves unconditionally. It's a love 
that holds on to every single one of us. It's a love that will not, we cannot shake off. We cannot escape it. It's a love in the words of the poetic pastor and the hymn writer George Matheson. It's a love that will not let me go. And God has, and I love this image and this picture that someone has suggested whenever they reflect on this idea that God's love will not let us go. That God has handcuffed himself to you in love. And you're not getting away from it. Despite how hard you may try. And the other thing about this love is that it's characterized by sacrifice, self-sacrifice. Whenever it says God so loved, the so there doesn't just mean an amount or a quantity. The so actually speaks of a way of loving. And what is the way that God loved? He loved by giving. But that's rushing ahead. We'll come to that in a moment. God loves And in a very real sense, the entire Bible is all about that love. It describes it, it unpacks it, it reveals it, it speaks of it. But for me to adequately capture the love of God in words, and I was was trying to think about this during the week, how do you describe God's love? You can use a kid's book to try and play it. God loves us this much, and even that imagery says something to us. But how do you actually get it across? I could never do it justice. And I sort of thought, if I try to describe it, I'll only regret not saying enough. And so, as I thought about this, I decided to use the words of a hymn. A hymn written in 1917 by Frederick Lehman. Some of you may know it, some of you may have sung it. Based on John 3.16. Just allow your mind to wander through these words. And these images and these pictures that he paints. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. But as I read through the words of the hymn, it's this next verse that really got me. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I just love the sort of pictures that paints of the vastness of God's love. For God so loved the world. And that includes us, people. Sinful, messed up people. And although that's again one of those phrases, one of those words, one of those terms that we tend to run away from or certainly our society does, that's who we are. We've already sang tonight, thank you for saving me, a sinner called by name. The truth is we all have sinned. I don't know if you've been uh, following the Tiger Woods story of these past couple of weeks. And it is tragic at so many levels. And in mentioning him, please hear me on this. In mentioning Tiger Woods, I am not standing in judgment or taking advantage of a situation to make a point. 
please God forgive me if there's any sense of that. But what has fascinated me has been the language used by Tiger Woods of himself as he responds to the choices that he himself has made recently. And I've lifted some of the words from his own website so that I'm trying to be as accurate as possible in what he has said. Quote, I've let my family down. I regret those transgressions with all my heart. I've not been true to my values and the behavior my family deserves. I am not without faults and I am far short of perfect. I am dealing with my behavior and personal feelings behind closed doors with my family. Those feelings should be shared by us alone. Personal sins should not require press releases. And then on Friday of this week he said this. I want to say again to everyone that I am profoundly sorry and that I ask for forgiveness. After much soul searching, I've decided to take an indefinite break from professional golf. I need to focus my intention on being a better husband, a better father, and a better person. And to hear such a high-profile person talk in terms of transgressions and personal sin. And the idea of soul searching and of needing forgiveness is, I think, rather extraordinary. God loves the world. God loves the sinner. God loves Tiger Woods. And although it's a phrase in danger of overuse, it's still brilliant that there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. And there's nothing... Tiger Woods can do to make God love him any less. God loves the transgressor. God loves the sinner. But as I said earlier, his love is agape love. And therefore it doesn't end with, for God so loved the world, full stop. Because remember, it's not an affection. It's not just a feeling. It's a decision. It's an action. So we go on. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't just give us a bunch of rules. He didn't just give us regulations, a code of conduct. didn't just give us requirements. What he actually gave was his one and his only son. And so God's love is a giving love. And that's why this verse is so key to Christmas. That's why this verse is, for me, such a great one to look at during December because Christmas is actually a celebration of of giving love. And over the next couple of weeks as we celebrate the birth of God's one and only Son, we are actually celebrating the the fact that God is a giving God. Giving of His love in sending His one and only Son. But what I find even more humbling is the discovery and the recognition that the giving love not only meant that Jesus was born, and, and that's what Christmas is all about, but that he was born to die. That God knew the full extent of what this giving love would require. And so Paul writes to the church in Rome, God shows his love for us. He shows, he demonstrates his love. He expresses his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, again, there's that description of each one of us. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So whenever God gave, 
not only was the manger in view, but so was the cross. Giving love, agape love, truly is sacrificial love. And God knew that his perfect Christmas gift would be abused and would be beaten and would be killed. And Christ died. But he didn't just die for something, he died for someone. Not just for a cause, but for a person. He died for you and me. He died in place of, on our behalf. And time and time again, as you read the New Testament, you discover that the writers are trying to get that point across. Let me just give you some examples. Christ died for our sins. Jesus gave himself for us. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Greater love is no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. This is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so when God came, or when God gave and Jesus came, it was for us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And Paul, right into the Ephesians, says, because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're free people. In other words, no longer do I need to face the prospect of perishing as we were looking at this morning. But because God loves me this much, because God loves transgressors, God loves sinners, then I can know true freedom. And so I can say with total confidence, God doesn't want anyone to perish. 2 Peter 3 now. But I can also say with total confidence that he doesn't want anyone to perish, not just because he said it explicitly, but because he loves. He loves a world, you and I. And he loves us to such an extent that it's a giving love he gave. And he gave what? His one and only son for us so that we could know true freedom. Let's pray before I hand back to God. Father, at this time of year, and as Ralph has reminded us, when we are so busy, so many things to distract, and so many of those are good things as well, God, I pray that we would bear in mind the fact that we celebrate the giving love of an amazing God who loved us despite the mess we are in so much that he was prepared to give what was so precious to him. And so God, as we celebrate Christmas, as we reflect on the manger, help us also to keep in focus the cross, which does speak to us of just the full extent of your unconditional love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.